All right, church, well, let's take our Bibles together and let's turn to Psalm 110. That's where we'll be today. Uh, this summer, we've been working through the Psalms as elders, and I know you've been well-fed over the last few weeks as Sonny and I have been away, and looking forward to uh, taking part in this series in Psalms today, uh, preaching one of my favorite Psalms of the Psalter, Psalm 110. And let me say this, too, as you're turning to that passage uh, Sonny and I are, we just want to say we're extremely grateful uh, to our elders for the time we've been able to have away uh, this last few weeks to spend time with family. Uh, Sonny and I got to attend our uh, niece's wedding and then also our, our nephew's wedding as well, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, we have now in, our, in the Puyi's family a new niece-in-law and a new nephew-in-law which, to be frank, makes me feel really old, <laughs> but grateful. So, and we're good to be. We're glad to be back. I just want to say, as we're getting started this morning, a word of thanks to our elders. This was really meaningful to Sonny and I to be away and to have that time uh, to refresh and to be a part of those weddings. So, thank you, elders. Thank you for your generosity in that way, and thank you also for uh, handling the word in my absence the last few weeks. So, all right, church, you got your Bibles open to Psalm one ten. I'm just going to keep preaching, okay? If the microphone doesn't start working right, then we'll just go. Are you all okay with that? Psalm 110, the word of God says this. Let's do this. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. <coughs> A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. God, I want to ask you now to give your servant utterance. Help me, Lord, to do justice to this great psalm. And Lord, may we believe in King David's king. May we trust in him, love him, serve him, and submit to him. I pray that in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, go ahead and take a seat. There's this really great moment in the Old Testament when uh, David, as a young man, he goes off to kill Goliath. And just before he does that, he puts on Saul's armor. And it's, it's kind of a comical moment because he puts on the armor and he says, I can't maneuver in this thing. It's too unwieldy. And actually the wording here is uh, a bit of euphemism. David says, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them, tested them. In other words, the armor's too big. It's too cumbersome. It's too overwhelming for young David at that point. And I point that out because when I read Psalm 110, Psalm 110 is a lot like that. It's a lot like Saul's armor. It's too big for King David. 
It's too cumbersome. It's too overwhelming. There's got to be another king that David's talking about in this psalm. There's this priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll get to that in just a second. That, well, there's got to be somebody else that David's describing in this passage. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of psalms in the Psalter are like Psalm 110. They're, you know, they're what are called royal psalms. And they start talking about King David. King David's awesome and he's great and he's the best ruler in the world. And then about halfway through the psalm, you start thinking like, wow, that's, this really isn't about King David. There must be something else that this psalm is pointing to, a true and better King David. That's how a lot of royal psalms work in the Psalter. But, you know, Psalm 110 is different. There are no uh, illusions that David is talking about himself at all in this psalm. Psalm 110 doesn't waste any time talking about King David, and that's clear from verse 1, where David says, The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord. David says, my, Yahweh says to my Lord. Who is David's Lord? Isn't David the king of Israel? Who's his Lord? Why would he be referencing someone who's over him, more powerful than him in his kingdom? How can Yahweh be saying something to David's Lord here? So we know right away that David, he's not writing about himself in this psalm. He's writing about a true and better king of Israel. One, a king who will be oodles and oodles better than David. So let's talk about this better than David king. I'll give you four descriptions of him in the psalm. Here's number one. You can write this in your notes. David describes in this psalm the coming of a divine master. A divine master. I, I have to cover some technical things here. Can I, can I get a little technical with you in the Hebrew text? Do you mind? Just give me a thumbs up if you're okay with that. Thumbs up, all right. No thumbs down? That's good, all right. <laughs> Two things you need to know in order to understand this psalm. Uh, first of all, there's that statement at the beginning of the psalm where it says, uh, a Psalm of David. And in your, if you have an ESV Bible or another translation, it's in capital letters. I want you all to know that's not the translators. That's not the ESV translators giving a section heading here. We've covered this before. That, that's actually part of the Hebrew text. That's 3,000 years old, just like the rest of Psalm 110. And it's absolutely crucial that you know that David is the author of this psalm. I'll explain why later. All right. Everybody got that? Here's another technical thing that you need to know. There are two words for Lord in verse 1. I've covered this before, too, in the past. And I know it's a little confusing in English. The Lord said to my Lord. In Hebrew, it says, Yahweh said to my Adon, or Yahweh said to my Adonai. Those are two different words. Yahweh, as most of you know, this is the Hebrew tetragrammaton. This is the name of the Lord that, that means I am. This is how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. That's the, in the Middle Ages, uh, it was pronounced Jehovah. I prefer uh, the ancient uh, way to pronounce this, Yahweh. So what, we have Yahweh, and then there's the other word for Lord, which is Adonai. And this word more typically means Lord or Master. I prefer Master. So I'm, I'm going with that word. So, and, and here's another thing about this first verse that you need to know. The word for says here is a word that is typically translated in the Hebrew oracle. So this isn't just, you know, Yahweh having a conversation with that. This is an oracle. This is an oracle from the, we dealt with oracles when we, we went through Habakkuk not that long ago. 
This is a big, this is a big, this is a very rare word that's used in the Psalter. So you know something bigger is going on here than just King David and something going on with King David. So let me put all this together and reread verse 1 for you. It's something like this. A Psalm of David, Yahweh declares an oracle concerning my David's master. Everybody got it? Yahweh declares an oracle to David's master. What's the oracle? What's he say to this master? Well, here it is. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand, at the right hand of Yahweh, until I make your enemies your footstool. Wow, whoever this master is, this is an important person. This is an, an impressive person. He sits at the right hand of Yahweh. Yahweh fights for him. He makes his enemies a footstool. Y'all know what that means, right? A footstool. That's, that's Old Testament language for Yahweh's going to womp the enemies and put them under this master's feet. It, I mean, it wasn't just in the Hebrew world. Here's a replica on the screen of King Tut's throne. King Tut lived about 300 years before David in Egypt. Sonia and I saw an exhibit of King Tut at the Field Museum and Museum a few years back. And you can see the throne here, and you can see that footstool where you put your foot up. And if you zoom in on this footstool, you can see uh, painted on there these images of the enemies of Pharaoh. And they've got their hands bound behind their back. And, you know, metaphorically speaking, King Tut, King Tut is ruling over these enemies. He puts his feet up on them. So here's what David is saying here. He's saying, Yahweh is going to do this for David's master, whoever David's master is. He's going to destroy and humble his enemies so much that this master will be able to metaphorically speaking, put his foot up on his enemies as a sign of domination. Everybody got it? That's what's going on here. Who is David talking about? Who is his master? Don't answer that yet. We got more to cover. Write this down as number two. David describes the, the coming of a divine master. Now in verse two, he starts to describe the coming of a divine king. David writes in verse two, the Lord Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Zion is an ancient name for Jerusalem. That's the place where the Old Testament kings reigned. David established Jerusalem as home base for the Old Testament kings. And so David now says that Yahweh is sending forth from Zion a mighty scepter, uh, this rod, this ornamental uh, staff that signifies governmental authority. He's sending my Lord to reign in Zion. You might say, shouldn't David rule in Zion? A greater than David person is going to come. David's master who's going to rule in Zion with the scepter. This divine king will rule over Zion. He will rule in the midst of his enemies. He will rule conceivably even over David. This is King David's king. Then David writes in verse 3 about this king. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Hmm. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. In other words, this king, this master, whoever David's talking about here, will never grow old, will never get weary, will never stop reigning, will never stop being king, and people, holy people, will flock to him and can't wait to be ruled by him. What's he talking about? 
This is conjecture on my part. I actually think David wrote this psalm as an older man. I can't say that for sure, and I can't quote chapter and verse on that, but I think he wrote it later in life after he had a few disappointments in his life, after he had aged a little bit. In fact, you know, there's this scene in David's life. This is in the post-Bathsheba era when David actually went off to battle with his troops, and he, he just about got killed. Because he couldn't, you know, how it is when you get older, he couldn't wield the sword like he used to. And actually, David's men, they came to him after this, after he almost died on the battlefield, and they swore to him, you'll never come out to battle with us again. Okay, you are the king, you're too important as the king, you're not coming to battle. You know, they, would, they didn't say this explicitly, but here's what they're saying, you're too old to come and fight with us anymore, David. And so I can imagine David going back to his, his palace and thinking to himself, if only if I would never get old, if only there was a king who never got old, who never got weary, who never, you know, aged and had to pass on his kingdom to some lousy son of mine. Is there such a king like that? Also, David says this about this divine king in verse three, this idealized king, the people will offer themselves freely to him. So here you go. Here are my services. You know, David, David had ruled long enough to know that the people that he ruled over were fickle. And David actually had a son, Absalom, who usurped his throne, and then people started following Absalom. And David had this commander of his army named Joab, who was kind of a bloodthirsty guy who was always, you know, manipulating things behind David's back. He wasn't a holy guy necessarily. And so David starts wondering, if only, if only there was this kind of king who ruled perfectly. The people flocked to him voluntarily and holy people came to him. You know, there's, there's this saying, it's Shakespeare. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Y'all ever heard that before? Whenever I see Queen Elizabeth on TV, I say that. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And I usually do that in a Queen Elizabeth impersonation which Sonia loves, but the rest of you probably think is ridiculous. <laughs> but it's true, and David knew that the, the crown was heavy, and people don't willingly come and serve you all the time, and people aren't holy in your kingdom. And yet here's a king. Here's a king who rules in perfect righteousness, holiness, People willingly come to him in holy garments. Who is this guy? I, I mean, that sounds dreamy, right? That sounds great. I want to be a part of a kingdom like that. I want to submit to a king like that. And some of you right now, we're talking about kings. You're like, come on, Pastor Tony. We're Americans. We don't like kings. We took King George's tea and we threw it in the ocean. Take that. We don't like kings, right? Well, yeah, I think that's because we have imperfect kings. We even now in our day have constitutional monarchies that aren't even real kings or queens anyway. And we don't, we don't have this, this, this perfection that David's talking about here. You know, and I, I kind of, I feel what you feel towards kings. I heard Prince Harry the other day say that, He's only going to have two kids and no responsible couple should have more than two kids because of the overpopulation of Mother Earth and we're killing Mother Earth and I wanted to go get some tea and throw it into Lake Decatur. <laughs> that is stupid. I got issues. I don't like kings either. 
We're Americans, we want democracy, but what if you had a perfect king, more perfect than us? And a king, by the way, we're not gonna vote for him. He's gonna rule with justice and with power and with equity, and he's gonna rule over the evil of this world and put it down forever. Could I sign you up for that kind of kingdom, that kind of king? I want that. Who are we talking about here? Hold on, don't say it yet. (laughs) Write this down as number three. The person that David describes is more than just a divine master. He's more than just a divine king. He's a divine priest. Here's another term we don't like in America. We don't like kings, and typically we don't like priests because priests historically were mediators between us and God. We don't want a mediator. We want direct access to God. And also we look at the Old Testament and we see the failures of the priests and we see the failures of the kings. And in our modern day, we see the failures of the priests and the failures of the kings. Failure after failure after failure. We look at priests and kings and, you know, we have a hard time getting excited about this. But let's look at this priest. Verse 4. The Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Adonai, you, divine king, divine master, are not just a king, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I know what some of you are thinking right now, you're thinking, Melchizedek, who is he, what's he? Who are we talking about? And, you know, priest, who is this priest? Why is that important? Who's Melchizedek anyway? And isn't he a king? A king can't be a priest. What's going on here? Let me explain this as quickly as I can. There's this mysterious figure in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And Melech is the Hebrew word for king. Tzadok is the Hebrew word for righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. And what happened in Genesis 14 is that Abraham uh, went off to battle with a bunch of soldiers that he cobbled together. And he defeated this enemy, and he brought back all of these people, and he brought back all of this plunder back to the, the promised land. And when he got back, and he, after he won this great victory, he had these two kings come out to him and try to honor him. You had this wicked king of Sodom, and then you had the good king, King Melchizedek. And the king of Sodom, this wicked king, uh, tried to tell Abraham You know, just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving us back our people. You can keep whatever plunder you had along the way. Just keep it. It'll be my little price to you for winning this victory. And Abraham basically insults this king. And he says, I don't want nothing from you. I don't want anybody to say that I got rich on you, wicked king of Sodom. I want people to hear that God is the one who has blessed me and that God is the one who has done all these good things for me. Man, it's just like insult to the king. Okay. But then this other king, he's there as well, Melchizedek. And this king brings out bread and wine to Abraham. He blesses Abraham. And Abraham doesn't curse this guy or rebuke him. Abraham actually gives him a tenth of all that he possesses as an honor to this king. And not only is it referred to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, he's actually the king of Salem, a priest of the God Most High. Salem, Hebrew, it's derived from that word shalom for peace. So he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. 
And Abraham, you, you guys know in the Hebrew world, Abraham, he's the father of everybody. How could Abraham bless this guy? How could this guy be better than Abraham? How could Abraham give him this great gift? What is going on here? He's the king of Salem, later to be Jerusalem. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. And he's, he's never mentioned before that in Genesis 14 or after that. He's not mentioned for a thousand years until David writes Psalm 110. Now, what is going on with this? Here's what D.A. Carson says about Psalm 10. Hang and I were there when Carson preached this 10 years ago. Hang and Ryan and I. And Here's his theory. D.A. Carson's conjecture about Psalm 110 is this. He, he says that Israelite kings like David, what they had to do, and this is from the book of Deuteronomy, is they had to take the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they had to write it out their own copy of it, and study it daily, every day, reading God's Word. And what Carson says is possibly, this is conjecture, David is king of Israel. You know, he had read Genesis several times, and he knew all about this guy Melchizedek. One day he reads in his daily devotions about Genesis 14, 14 and this mysterious priest king, and David says to himself, hmm, wait a second, here's, here's a king of Jerusalem, like I'm the king of Jerusalem right now, but he's not just a king, he's a priest, who is this guy? And David knew in that day you couldn't be a priest and a king. In fact, Saul had gotten himself into trouble by doing priestly duties as the king. You know, you had this clear line of demarcation in the Israelite world. You had the priest and you had the kings. The priests were the, from the Levite clan and the, the kings were from the Judahite clan. It's kind of like our uh, divisions in the American. You had the judicial branch, the, the executive branch, the legislative branch. Theoretically, judges shouldn't legislate from the bench. I don't know if some, they were told that by some people, but you're not supposed to. Just like that, in the ancient world, you had priests and you had kings, and never those two things were to be mixed. But yet, here's this guy, Melchizedek, who is a priest, king. And so David, as he's in his daily devotions, reading about Genesis 14, Melchizedek, all of a sudden, he gets this oracle from the Lord. And he starts to write it out. And he starts to talk about this coming king, this coming master, this coming priest, not a Levite priest, but a Melchizedek priest, who is a priest forever. And Yahweh swears it, too. When Yahweh swears something in the Old Testament, you better take it seriously. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is this person who's in the order, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest and a king and the master and the Lord? I know some of you know the answer now. Don't say it yet. We're not done. Write this down as number four. There's more. Not only does David describe this divine master, this divine king, this divine priest, one last thing, David also describes this divine warrior judge. We don't like judges either in America. Unless it's Judge Judy, right? <laughs> Warriors, okay. We like G.I. Joe, but judges... No, we don't like judges. We don't like judgmentalism either. I heard someone say this last week, tongue in cheek, you know, that in America, the most popular Bible verse isn't John 3.16 anymore. It's Matthew 7.1, judge not lest you be judged. 
That's the worst thing that you could be called in America right now, somebody who's judgy. And yet here's this warrior judge, but let me just tell you, Americans, you're going to like this guy. You're going to like this judge. He's a warrior judge, and he comes to conquer evil. And if you thought that this description of a priest would be like a nice, soft little priest who wasn't going to do anything bad and wasn't going to be aggressive or anything, you thought wrong. Because here's what David says. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. That's Adonai, not Yahweh. Again, at the right hand of Yahweh. And this time, instead of Yahweh doing the battle for this Lord, this Lord is going to battle for himself. This master is going is to crack some skulls on his own. He says, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This Adonai. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Whew. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And let me just, just an exegetical note here. That word chiefs, some of you have a footnote for this in your, your Bible, but it's probably better translated the head, singular. He shatters the head, and, and that should bring to mind Genesis 3.15, the serpent who strikes the heel, the, uh, the offspring of the woman, and yet what does the offspring of the woman do? crushes the head of the serpent. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the head over the wide earth. This is not your typical judge. This isn't Judge Judy, and this isn't Queen Elizabeth. This is, this is a warrior. This is someone you don't want to trifle with. It's funny sometimes, you know, you, you go to the Psalms. I know people like to go to the Psalms, and they have this kind of Instagram approach to the Psalms. You know, they're looking for something inspiring to put on, on Instagram. And then sometimes the Psalms can deliver something tranquil. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. But it's not always like that in the Psalms. Sometimes it's not tranquil. It's violent. I haven't seen anybody put... Psalm 110, verse 6, on their Instagram feed and say, look at this. Isn't this inspiring? <laughs> he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the white earth. Whew. And this is a song, people. The Old Testament Israelites would get together and sing this as worship to the Lord. Write a song like that, hang, and we'll sing it. How is this? Let me say this. Let me talk about inspiration. The more, the older I get, the more I'm inspired by passages like this. You know why? Because I long for God to show up and crush the evil in our world. Don't you long for that? And so I read this and I say, yes, Lord. I want this. Not corpses per se, just for corpses sake, but strength and power and a divine warrior who will crush the evil in this world. If you don't know there's evil in this world and you're not tired of it, you're not paying attention. And so this, this is inspiring to me. Actually, it reminds me of one of the most inspiring verses in the New Testament, Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is just like Psalm 110. It goes like this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sending on it is faithful and true. 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a scepter, with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Believe it or not, Revelation 19, that passage right there, that was written 1,100 years after Psalm 110 was written. But both of those passages, 1,100 years apart, are written about the same person. A divine judge, warrior, king, ruler. Then David finishes his psalm and his description of this judge like this in verse 7. He will drink from the brook, by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a bit anticlimactic, I know. And what David is saying here is that this, this divine warrior is not just divine. He's, he's human. He drinks water. He's refreshed. He lifts up his head. He crushed the head of the enemy, and now he lifts up his own head. And he's utterly human, and at the same time, He's more than human. Who could David possibly be writing about? Who's he talking about here? Let me answer this by taking you to one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. There's this time when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and some of you might say he was always doing that, Pastor Tony. Well, this was a good, really good argument. In fact, this was the week that Jesus died. And just before that, they were peppering him with question after question after question. And Jesus was putting the Pharisees in their place again and again and again. And then in the midst of that, this is Matthew 22, Jesus asks them a question. Jesus turns the table on them. And he says this, what do you think about the Christ, Pharisees? Whose son is he? And they said to him, accurately, the son of David. So he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Whew. That is a humdinger of a question right there. How would you answer that? How can David's Lord also be David's son? And what's great about that passage is Jesus doesn't even answer it. He just leaves them befuddled by it and just walks off conceivably. And I've always wondered that. Why not answer it, Jesus? Why not tell them? They're dying to know or maybe they're not. Maybe, maybe he knew the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees and they would never accept the truth of this answer that he gives. I don't know why Jesus doesn't answer it. But there's enough evidence in the New Testament as to what Jesus is talking about that you should know how to answer that question. Do you now? Do you harvest a cater? How could David's son also be David's Lord? That's one of the most important questions that you could ever answer in your life. You better have a good answer for that. How can David's son also be David's Lord? 
How is that possible? I mean, who calls their son Lord? What if I started calling Alistair my Lord and my master? Wouldn't you be like, that's kind of weird. And that would be even more case in the Jewish world. You wouldn't do that with your son or your grandson or your, your ancestor down the line. So how can David get away with this? Here's the question that you better have a good answer to, Christian. How can the son of David, the Messiah, also be David's master? How is that possible? Let me connect the dots for you from Psalm 110. The son of David that's prophesied in Psalm 110 is more than just the son of David. Isn't he? According to the New Testament, he's the son of God. And if the Pharisees were paying attention, they might have figured that out. Or maybe not, their hearts were hard. Because who is the divine master of Psalm 110? Who's the divine king of Psalm 110? Who's the divine priest of Psalm 110? The divine judge, the divine son of David, the Messiah. Who is he, church? You can answer now, please. Good answer. His name is Jesus. And 3,000 years ago, David wrote about him as my Lord. He's coming, David said. He's coming. And by the way, he is the son of David too. Humanly speaking, he's the son of Abraham too. That's why Matthew starts his gospel by giving this genealogy that I know you guys skip over when you read the New Testament. But it's incredibly important. Because it says Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David and his mother Mary is part of that lineage. And Jesus comes from that. That's his human side. But he's more than just the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the creator of the universe. He's co-eternal with the father even. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him this way? Or maybe for the first time today you're like, wow, Psalm 110 has a whole new picture of Jesus I hadn't seen before. I hope that's the case. Do you know this Jesus? Have you believed on him, his death for your sin? He's more than just the son of God. He's a savior. And we've sung about this already with the beautiful name of Jesus. The sacrifice that he made in order that we might be reconciled to our God and live eternally with him. Do you know, do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? I want you to. This is the son of David, whom God the Father said, this is my beloved son, and whom I am well pleased. So, we're gonna take communion, just a few moments. Let me give you some things to chew on for the rest of the week. And then we'll take communion and worship to the Lord. I want to answer two questions as I close. And they might be questions on your mind right now. You might say, okay, Pastor Tony, got it. Who, but how is Jesus a priest according 
to the order of Melchizedek. How does that work? I want to address that. And then the second question I want to answer before we're done is, so what? What does this have to do with us? So let me address those two questions. How is Jesus a priest according to Melchizedek? That question's answered in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The author of Hebrews tells us this. You can read this on the screen. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, peace, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. We've dealt with this already, right? He is first, Melchizedek, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That word resembling is key there. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Melchizedek, you know, he's got no genealogy in the Genesis. Everybody in Genesis has a genealogy. So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. But then Melchizedek just show up, shows up and he's got nobody. No father, no son, nothing. And the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus, Jesus is like that. He has no divine genealogy. Yeah, he's got a human genealogy, Matthew 1, but he's got no divine genealogy because he's co-eternal with the Father. So he's like Melchizedek. And besides that, Jesus is not a Levitical priest. He's a Melchizedek priest. And the author of Hebrews says that's significant because this priest, Jesus, arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I will tell you this, there are some people that believe that Melchizedek in Genesis 14, this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, of Christ, uh, pre-incarnate. And this is what theologians refer to as Christophanies, pre-incarnate Christophanies of Christ. And there's actually a case that could be made for that. I don't know if I would take a bullet for that for Melchizedek, because I, I see here in Hebrews, he's saying he's like Melchizedek. He's like this priest. He is the, in the order of Melchizedek. He doesn't come from the Levitical priesthood. He comes from the, the Melchizedek priesthood. And here's, here's how the typology works. Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham and he offered him bread and he offered wine to refresh him. Jesus Christ, the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, he offers up the bread of his broken body. He offers up his shed blood as payment for our sin to refresh and save us. And Hebrews says, for it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and established above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. In other words, not only is Jesus like Melchizedek, our great high priest, he's better than Melchizedek. Because he offers up as a high priest a sacrifice that's better than any sacrifice Melchizedek or anybody could offer up. He offered up himself. He offered up himself as payment for our sin. Here's how Charity Smith describes it in her hymn, circa 1863. 
before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So final question. What does this have to do with us? Pastor Tony, this is a lot. This is a lot. Melchizedek, divine priest, divine king, divine judge, warrior. Whoo! What do I do with this? How does this apply to me? How do I live this out? Here's how you apply it. Everybody listening? Here's what I want you to do with all of this. Psalm 110, Hebrews, the whole lot. You do this, Harvest Decatur. You believe. You believe. I believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man and that he, as our great high priest, offered himself as a sacrifice for my sin. I believe it. More important than anything else in this world, I believe that it's the truest thing in this world. And not only that, I believe that Jesus is coming back as a divine warrior, as a king, to put away the evil of this world and to rule in righteousness and peace for eternity. In fact, David said, look at verse three again with me, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Is that you? Are you part of that group? Offering yourself up freely to King Jesus, clothed in the garments of righteousness that he has given you by his death. I'll tell you what, there's one other option for that. You can either be that, or you can be the footstool. What do you want to be? Do you want to be on the side of King Jesus, coming to him, arrayed in garments of holiness, or do you want to be his enemy? that is conquered and dominated his footstool. Those are the options from Psalm 110. What's it gonna be, Harvest Decatur? Some of you might say, Pastor Tony, we believe, we do, we really do. You don't have to preach so hard to us. Good. I believe too. And if you do believe in this Jesus that died for your sins, the great high priest, Psalm 110 and the whole lot, then do this, worship him. Worship him like you believe. And submit your life to him like he is a king. And not, you know, Jesus is my good buddy, you know. He's my friend who I dictate orders to. No, he's your king. He's in charge. He's the master. He's in charge. Submit fully to him. Everybody with me? Y'all believing, are you now? We're going to take communion in a second. You better believe you're going to take communion. I'll close with this. Sonny and I just got back from Europe, so this is my favorite joke about Europeans. I told this joke to a car full of Croatians, and they loved it. So here you go. A European dream is this. 
You drive a German car. You live under a British form of government. You eat French food. And you have an Italian love life. That's a dream come true for a European. Now here's a European's nightmare. You drive a French car. You live under an Italian form of government. You eat British food. And you have a German love life. When I look at Psalm 110, I can look at this very easily through the eyes of an American, and I can see that it's something that we as secularized Americans despise. And this is like a nightmare to a master? What, is it? what am I, his servant? I am the master of my own fate. I don't want a master, a king. We don't like kings. A priest, we don't like priests. A judge, a warrior, okay, warrior. But a judge, we don't like that either. This could be a nightmare for the modern American person. But if you're an American Christian, we got any American Christians out there? This isn't a nightmare. This is a dream come true. Jesus as our master, as the Lord. Yes, Lord Jesus. I've made a mess of my life. You be the Lord of it. Jesus says, our king, yes, come and reign, King Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. Absolutely, because not only is he our great high priest, he's the sacrifice that paid for our sins. Jesus is the divine judge warrior to come that will defeat our enemies and claim us as his own. Yes, yes, yes. Come, Lord Jesus. We want this. Let's bow in a word of prayer.